0: Alright, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of February 19th, 2022, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And I guess, you know, like everybody, I'm just like desperately trying to find some reason for optimism here in a... uh, world situation that is just getting more grim by the moment, with, you know, fighting now erupting along the uh, so-called line of contact in the breakaway Donbas region of Ukraine. And if there's ever been a moment in my lifetime where, you know, it seems like war is just the proverbial shot away, this is sure it. And on the subject of um, paradoxical fascist, pseudo-anti-fascism, something that I've been... Ranting about a lot lately. Vladimir Putin accused Ukraine of genocide, quote unquote, in the shelling that has been going on back and forth over the line of contact in Donbass. Shelling which has been entirely mutual between the Ukrainian government and the Russian backed separatists. So here we have, you know, the guy who has actually been preparing a mass internment of the Crimean Tartars in illegally annexed Crimean Peninsula, accuses Ukraine of genocide in the Donbass. Ukraine, a country where Russia actually committed genocide in the early 1930s, in the mass starvation of the Holodomor. What hutzpah! You simply cannot make this stuff up. So, you know, it's certainly quite ironic that, uh, you know, Russia is appropriating this language and is actually, you know, perhaps preparing a humanitarian intervention, quote unquote, rhetoric which has, you know, traditionally been employed by the West against Russian proxy or allied states. And uh, what strikes me as even stranger, perhaps, is uh, all of this talk from Joe Biden about a uh, false flag operation which is in the works. I mean this is, you know, a term which is, you know, been used by, uh, you know, conspiranoid circles so to speak on the internet for years. And now it's being bandied about by the president of the United States. And I mean you can just see it's all it's all going to be predictable like clockwork. If there is some kind of ghastly escalation against Russian forces on the Ukrainian border or against Russian-backed separatists on the line of contact in Donbass, Biden is going to say that it was a false flag attack carried out by the Russians to blame the Ukrainians. And Putin is going to deny it. And he may even claim that it was a false, false flag, so to speak, carried out by the Ukrainians to blame the Russians for trying to frame the Ukrainians. (laughs) And all of these, you know, conspiranoid lefty types in the West who in the uh, you know the 20 years since 9-11 have been squealing false flag, false flag, every time a bomb goes off anywhere, and blaming every terrorist attack anywhere in the world on the CIA or Mossad, well, they're all going to believe Putin, that it wasn't a false flag attack. Or if it was, it was actually a false, false flag attack. <laughs> it's all utterly predictable. It's all utterly tiresome. And it's all utterly post-truth and dystopian. All right, well, I'm going to be doing a little bit of reading tonight. Going to be discussing a book which is all too timely and relevant, even though it was written quite a few years ago. So what's going on in the world today, and particularly the utterly, you know, hypocritical and problematic stance of the so-called anti-war forces in the West. But what actually got me onto this—it's interesting—was uh, you know a a recent book which just came out last year. Uh, I read a very short review of it in um, Foreign Affairs magazine, and I really wanted to you know get a copy and discuss it and review it on this podcast. But um, Yale University Press is not responding to my emails, which is very annoying. So their loss. I'm not going to review the book, and the book is. Um, entitled, somewhat problematically, A World After Liberalism, Philosophers of the Radical Right by Matthew Rose. Now, the uh, subject matter of this book looks um, critically important for this moment, and it looks like it's really well-researched, and I really would like to read it, and if Yale University Press ever responds to my emails, maybe one day I will. Uh, My problem with the title is um, that use of the word liberalism. Uh, I really kind of eschew that word. It's become very problematic. It doesn't have any fixed meaning anymore. And in uh, mainstream American political discourse, it's more often than not used as a term of opprobrium by either the left or the right, or sometimes even the center. (laughs) <laughs> so I think that word should pretty much be uh, perhaps outright abandoned but um, I should make clear the sense in which he is using it I mean, you know, he's writing for the uh, the policy elite and, you know, the policy wonkdom, when they talk about liberalism or the liberal order they're talking about, you know the uh, post-war order crafted by the West bourgeois democracy and free markets and again, you know, this is not uh this is not my ideology. I mean, it's kind of problematic on two counts. First, that it's implicitly assuming that the only possible form of democracy is bourgeois democracy, which is a dangerous notion. And um secondly, it conflates so-called free markets with democracy, which is an even more dangerous notion. But um I certainly do recognize with this critique in mind that, uh, you know, the liberal order is certainly preferable to fascism. I do not equivocate on that whatsoever. Anyway, just making clear that that's what Matthew Rose means by liberalism. To read this um, very brief review by G. John Ickenberry in the November-December 2021 edition of Foreign Affairs of the book, A World After Liberalism, Philosophers of the Radical Right by Matthew Rose. Across the Western world, right-wing activists and movements have grown louder in recent years. As Rose argues in this fascinating book, today's various nationalists, populists, religious traditionalists, and racial supremacists form the vanguard of a conservative, revolution with deep roots in the 20th century, and they are now charting a path to a post-liberal future. To illuminate the origins of this century's post-liberal wave, Rose profiles major intellectual figures of the radical right prominent in the last century. The German historian Oswald Spengler developed an account of world history as a series of cultural struggles rooted in the unbridgeable divides of blood, soil, language, and tradition. Alain de Benoist was a prophet of the French far-right in his heyday, developing a theory of folk democracy in which all peoples had the right to protect their customs, cultures, and ethnic identities from the effects of liberalism. Francis Parker Yockey was the preeminent American theorist of authoritarianism, envisioning an alliance between a post-liberal America and a post-Soviet Russia. To these thinkers, liberal democracy and its hallowed principles represented antiquarian relics of an Enlightenment age that threatened Western culture and identity. They may seem obscure to many readers, but they are well-known and well-regarded by the adherents of political movements that pose a serious threat to liberalism around the world today. And there was one line in this that I found to be very, very telling indeed. The notion of an alliance between a post-liberal America and a post-Soviet Russia, which very much seemed to be the uh, kind of uh, you know, terrifying world order which was emerging when Donald Trump was in the White House and, you know, all was all schmoozy with Vladimir Putin. And very much speaks to what the... Uh, increasingly open and increasingly hegemonic agenda of the worldwide far right is shaping up to be. All right, now of these three figures, the one I'm really going to be uh, focusing on is the least known of the three. Probably people are aware of Oswald Spengler, the author of um, Decline of the West, who was kind of a uh, an intellectual progenitor of um, German fascism in the uh, first half of the 20th century, Alain de Benoist is still alive, and uh, in Googling around to see what he's been up to lately, well, guess where he was just recently interviewed? Yeah, you guessed it, RT, organ of Kremlin state propaganda, of course. In French, rather uh, exhaustive um, interview with him. Goes on for quite some time, streamed on uh, July 1st, 2019. But the one that uh, is probably the least known is uh, Francis Parker Yockey. And when I read this review in which the American of this, uh, you know, Troika, which is under under discussion, the German Oswald Spengler, the French Alain de Benoist, and uh, the American Francis Parker Yockey is the one who was calling for, uh, you know, an alliance between a post-liberal America and a post-Soviet Russia, I was like, oh, right, Francis Parker Yockey. And uh, I remembered that um, back in the 1990s, my friend Kevin Coogan, old comrade of mine from the uh, Libertarian Book Club here in New York City, was working on a very extensive biography of Francis Parker Yockey, which was finally published by Brooklyn's Autonomedia Press in 1999. And I had never heard of Francis Parker Yockey, And... My buddy Kevin was insisting that this was really important stuff, and I absolutely had to read this book, and he gave me a copy, and because I had never heard of Francis Parker Yaki before, I put it on my bookshelf and I forgot about it, (laughs) until just now, and in the intervening years, uh, my friend Kevin Coogan died, so um, I'm terribly sorry I did not get around to reading your book while you were alive. Kevin, this show is dedicated to you very important and prescient work that you did in this book, which I finally blew the dust off and read after all of these years. So I couldn't get a copy of um, A World After Liberalism by Matthew Rose, but uh, I am I going to be uh, <clears throat> reading segments from uh, Dreamer of the Day, Francis Parker Yockey and the Post-War Fascist International by Kevin Coogan, published by uh, Media Press in Brooklyn in 1999. A rather exhaustive tome. I'm just going to be reading a few uh, uh, very enlightening passages from it. To commence, an eight-year FBI manhunt ended on the afternoon of June 6, 1960, when Francis Parker Yockey, one of the most mysterious figures ever to emerge, From the American far right was arrested in Oakland, California. The United States government first became interested in Yaqui in the early 1950s after it received reports that he had been advocating an alliance between the far right and the Soviet Union against America. There were even rumors that he had visited Russia. After his arrest, the government discovered that he had recently been in Havana, Cuba, where he had reportedly tried to meet Castro. We may hope that uh, Fidel gave him the heave-ho, or the cold shoulder, to continue. Born in Chicago in 1917, Yaki was a graduate of Notre Dame's law school. After a brief stint in the army during World War II, he served as an assistant district attorney in Detroit. Then in 1946, he went to Weissbaden, West Germany as a U.S. government attorney assigned to the war crimes trials. Disgusted with what he saw, he abandoned his position and wrote his magnum opus, Imperium, The Philosophy of History and Politics, in just six months. A massive neo-Spenglerian tome that called for the formation of a new European superpower, Imperium was first published in London in 1948. It is still sold today in right-wing bookstores in Europe and America. The euphoria surrounding Yaki's apprehension ended abruptly. Early on the morning of June 17, 1960, Yaki was found dead in his high-security cell in the San Francisco City Jail. An autopsy would reveal that he had committed suicide by ingesting a capsule containing 0.2 grams of potassium cyanide, double the lethal dose. Yaki's intense identification with Europe was symbolized by his pseudonym under which he wrote his opus Imperium, Ulick Varange. Ulick is an ancient Irish name, while Varange refers to the Varangians, 9th century Vikings, who helped found the first Russian state in Kiev, Ulik Varanj then, symbolized the ideal of a united Europe, stretching from Galway to the Urals. Yaki visited England sometime in the summer of 1947 to meet with Sir Oswald Mosley, the pre-war leader of the British Union of Fascists, who had been jailed under preventative detention orders in the spring of 1940. Mosley took his first tentative step back into politics in 1946 with My Answer, a book that denied any charge of treason. One year later, he published his own imperium-like opus called The Alternative. Like Yaki, he argued that the narrow nationalism of pre-war fascism was obsolete, and that a new United Europe must be created as a third force between the Soviet threat and American capitalism. And it was uh, with uh, you know these uh, veteran followers of Mosley, veteran Mosleyites in England, that uh, Yaki founded his organization, the European Liberation Front. Both Yaki and Mosley worked together in this period to try to save a host of convicted Nazi war criminals from the gallows and when Yaki shortly thereafter began his turn east he was not acting alone around the time of Imperium's publication the radical right socialist Reich party was founded in Germany the SRP's call for a pro eastern Neutralist Germany was almost identical to Yaki's position and the ELF Yaki's group the European Liberation Front was in some respects the SRP's British cousin while Europe would ultimately be united from the rocky promontories of Galway to the Urals Yaki wrote he was also clear that for the next 25 years at least Russia was a lesser enemy than America. Okay, uh, he also discusses Yaqui's interest in the works of Julius Cesare Andrea Evola, early intellectual progenitor of Italian fascism, who is also very popular on the so-called alt-right today here in the United States. More to say about him later. And uh, Yaqui's influence in, uh, in turn on Alain de Benoist, in April 1992, de Benoist went to Russia to meet with members of the Red-Brown Alliance, that strange coalition of Brezhnev-era hacks, young Stalinists clad in blue jeans and leather jackets, obscure ex-KGB generals, monarchists, meaning czarists, and mother Russia worshippers. The color red, of course, referring to, you know, communism, and uh, the color brown referring to fascism, as in Hitler's brown shirts. De Benoist trip was backed by Alexander Dugan and his far-right newspaper, Dian, the day. Dugan was at this time a uh, sort of a rising star on the uh, on the Russian far-right. And you know, first uh, you know promulgating this theory of a red brown alliance, and was the Russian translator of Julius Evola. And by the time uh, my buddy, my late buddy Kevin Coogan, was writing this book in the late nineteen nineties, this agenda had um, already advanced a great deal. And uh, Kevin wrote towards the end of the book: the most virulent fascist movement in the world today exists not in Germany but in Russia. The collapse of the Soviet Union has led to a red-brown alliance, a strange ideological coalition that has united many of Russia's fascists with powerful elements inside the old Communist Party elite and Soviet national security establishment. And um, as we shall see, This red-brown alliance has uh, advanced much further in the 20 years since then, and has now actually become international. It's no longer just in Russia and Eastern Europe. So once again, I've been reading from uh, the book Dreamer of the Day, which is actually a reference to a quote from T.E. Lawrence, another figure who would flirt with fascism. Subtitle, Francis Parker Yockey and the Post-War Fascist International by my departed comrade, Kevin Coogan. Once again, Kevin, you wrote a really great, important, and prescient book. And I apologize that I did not read it when you were alive, because I didn't realize how important it was. It's only become more important in the upwards of 20 years since you wrote it, Kevin, as I shall uh, now demonstrate So let's examine some of the uh, political rhetoric which is going around these days. I will note that the slogan, Russia is our friend, is a popular catchphrase on the Trumpian alt-right. And it has also been picked up verbatim by supposed anti-war groups as Code Pink and World Beyond War. The resurgent radical right virtually throughout Europe, has long been looking to, you know, Putin as their big daddy. The xenophobic Pegida in Germany has often at their rallies in recent years held signs reading, Putin, help us, save us from America and Israel. And now, you know, well, particularly since since Trump's election for, you know, five years now, more and more of this rhetoric on the American right. And it is virtually indistinguishable from the so-called anti-war rhetoric of the American left. Okay, a prominent figure in American media just this past week said in response to the Ukraine crisis, quote, Putin just wants to keep his western border secure. Imagine how we would feel if Mexico and Canada became satellites of China, end quote. Well, If you assumed that that was coming from uh, a figure on the ostensible left, such as Max Blumenthal or Ben Norton or Matt Taibbi, you could certainly be forgiven because they talk that way all the time. But in fact, it was Tucker Carlson on Fox News who said that, and then he immediately went on to mockingly lampoon himself or sneeringly lampoon, you know, critics who would portray him as. Parroting Putin's propaganda, which of course he was very much in the same style as uh, Matt Taibbi and Katie ha- Katie Halper do with their podcast Useful Idiots, by portraying himself Tucker Carlson in the verbatim as quote a right wing agitator spewing Russian propaganda into millions of American homes end quote. Well, <laughs> all I can say is that the shoe fits, wear it. And he also, with unbelievable blatancy, actually. Referred to Ukraine as a Russian colony, implicitly justifying Russian aggression against the country. So the rhetoric is practically identical on the, you know, Trumpian right and the so-called, you know, poorly named anti-war left. And the, you know, the Red-Brown Alliance, which Kevin Coogan wrote about coming together in Russia in the early 1990s, Is now converging on the global stage, still led from Russia. And one of the key figures calling for such an alliance in explicit terms is Alexander Dugin, who was also mentioned and discussed in the readings from uh, Kevin Coogan's book on Francis Parker Yockey, and is today a very prominent figure in Russia, a uh, political confidant and. a personal confidant and political guru to Vladimir Putin, sometimes called Putin's Rasputin, and probably, you know, the key Russo-nationalist ideologue in the country in terms of, you know, the theoretical or intellectual foundations, if we can use those words, of Russo-nationalism. And Dugin is consciously cultivating Supposed anti war figures in the West and bringing them together with neo fascists around supporting despots like Putin and his allies and proxies such as Lukashenko in Belarus and Assad in Syria in the name of a so called multipolar world. He calls for both sides to, quote, put aside anti communist as well as anti-fascist prejudices, which are the instruments in the hands of liberals and globalists with which they keep their enemies divided. End quote. That is a verbatim quote from Alexander Dugan. From his book, 2014, Eurasian Mission, an introduction to Neo-Eurasianism, that's what he calls his philosophy, Eurasianism or Neo-Eurasianism. Obvious echoes of uh, Francis Parker Yaki's vision of a united Europe from Galway to the Urals, although in Dugan's vision, it would be a united Eurasia from Galway to Vladivostok. And uh, in one very telling episode, December 2014 saw an international Duganist conference in Moscow on the, quote, right of peoples to self-determination and building a multipolar world, end quote, bringing together various Euro-fascist formations. The participants included a delegation of American <coughs> leftists representing particularly the groups International Action Center and the United Anti-War Coalition, or UNAC. Now, for those who follow such arcana, both of these are entities that are ultimately the spawn of the Workers' World Party, a sort of a uh, retro-Stalinist and post-Trotskyist faction, which um, has its origins in a uh, a split in the um, Trotskyist Socialist Workers' Party here in the United States in 1956. The faction that supported the Soviet invasion of Hungary that year broke away from the SWP to form the Workers' World Party, which has unfortunately, ever since the Vietnam era, really been hegemonic in so-called anti-war politics in the United States, and really began adopting an explicitly red-brown politics, so to speak, in the post-Cold War era, particularly around uh, the former Yugoslavia and Bosnia, where they militantly took the side of Slobodan Milosevic and the Bosnian Serbs. All right, so uh, to bring the factionalism up to the uh, the current moment, UNAC, the United Anti-War Coalition, is a recent effort to try to unite the International Action Center and other organizations which remain in the workers' world orbit with ANSWER, the Orwellianly-named Act Now to Stop War and End Racism, which is now in the orbit of a splinter group that broke off from workers' world a couple of years back with the highly ironic name, once again, of the party for socialism, and liberation. Yeah, I think that uh, answer should actually stand for Act Now to Support War and Enable Racism, and the party for socialism and liberation should be the party for fascism and dictatorship. But here's the punchline. I've been waiting for the punchline. Here's the punchline. Getting back to that December 2014 Moscow confab, overseen by Alexander Dugan, in which these so-called anti-war hypocrites were in attendance, also in attendance was a delegation of white supremacists from a neo-Confederate organization called the League of the South. So unbelievable, these opportunist hypocrites who, you know, pretended to cheer on the toppling of all of the, you know, statues of Confederate generals in the, in the Southern states over the past couple of years, actually sat down and schmoozed in Moscow with open and unabashed Confederacy nostalgists. And I will also point out, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but the, the flag which has been adopted by the uh, the Russian-backed separatists in the Donbass region of Ukraine is practically identical to the Confederate flag. It's hard to believe that it's just a coincidence, although I have not researched the matter. But practically identical. The only difference is that there aren't any stars on the um, on the blue bars. But apart from that, it's almost exactly like the Confederate battle flag, a uh, blue St. Andrew's cross on a red field, without the stars. You know, it's essentially the same flag. And I'm just going to close by noting that uh, later today, Saturday, February 19th, 2022, at 3 p.m. up at Grand Central Station, there is going to be, quote, a demonstration against U.S.-NATO war with Russia in Ukraine, quote, unquote. A completely problematic construction, of course, because the U.S. is evacuating its embassy in Kiev In fact, it already evacuated its embassy in Kiev and moved it to Lviv in the west of the country, and now it's evacuating the embassy altogether. The U.S. is talking about sanctions against Russia in the event of an invasion of Ukraine, which mean nothing to Putin. So a demonstration against U.S.-NATO war with Russia, you're demonstrating against a hallucination. Now, once, you know, war actually begins. I mean, really, war has already begun. The war started really in 2014 in Donbass. But, you know, if a war directly involving Russia begins, sure, there's potential for escalation without a doubt. But right now, the threat is not U.S.-NATO war with Russia in Ukraine. The threat is a Russian invasion of Ukraine. And who are the uh, conveners of this ill-conceived protest? Well, surprise, surprise. Answer, Code Pink, International Action Center, UNAC, World Beyond War, all of the utterly compromised and bankrupt organizations that I've just been ranting against on this podcast. And some of the other ones there are, uh, you know, Black Agenda Report. I really got to ask you guys what you are thinking. Seriously, Black Agenda Report, you're going to unite with the same organizations who literally sent representatives to uh, meet in Moscow with the Neo-Confederate League of the South? What are you thinking? And I've also got to call out Extinction Rebellion. I mean, I like a lot of what you guys do, Extinction Rebellion. You know, I appreciate the way that you're pushing the envelope on uh, the whole question of climate change, but this is a really, really bad political choice that you have made. So, I will not be going to this demonstration this afternoon at 3 p.m. at Grand Central Station here in New York City. If this is your anti war movement, count me out. Any genuine anti war position has got to begin first and foremost with demands on the aggressor. And in this case, that means Vladimir Putin. And instead, the so-called anti-war voices in New York and the United States and the West are serving as a stateside extension, or Western extension, of Vladimir Putin's propaganda apparatus. The anti-war movement in the U.S. has become a pro-fascist and pro-war pseudo-pacifist movement in the tradition of Charles Lindbergh and Oswald Mosley. I'm not going to win any friends by saying this, but it has to be said. Watch my website, countervortex.org. We will certainly be, uh, you know, following events in Ukraine very intimately. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.